in the, in the history of the United States, there have been some 3,512 Medal of Honor recipients. It, it is our nation's highest military honor. Almost, it's interesting, almost half of those were awarded during the American Civil War when we were fighting uh, each other, 1,523 of them. Uh, again, kind of interesting, there were only 471 awarded in World War II. Medal of Honor is awarded to a person who has displayed, quote, conspicuous gallantry or valor above and beyond the call of duty. The, you see, the recipient has put his or her life on the line. I say her because there has been one woman of that 3,500 who has won the Medal of Honor. Her name was Mary Walker. She was a, a Union surgeon during the Civil War, and she was known to go across enemy lines to care for fallen soldiers, and this became well known. And so after the war, she was awarded the Medal of Honor. But, but then something happened in 1917. Now, she's still alive in 1917. Years later, she's had this medal. And years later, they decided to s separate the branches of service, Army and Navy. And they gave them the opportunity to review those um, uh, medals that had been awarded. And the Army did that. And they rescinded. They took back 911 medals of honor to include Mary Walker's. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you'd been, you had this thing for like 40 years or something, only to be told, just kidding, give it back. And she died in 1919. The good news is that in 1977, President Jimmy Car Carter re-awarded her the Medal of Honor. That's a good thing. That was the right thing to do. So the recipient has put his or her life on the line in danger with selfless disregard for the good of others. They have set aside their own instinctive need to survive, to help others survive. They run into danger across enemy lines, you know, bullets flying uh, to protect comrades. It's interesting to note that since the beginning of World War II, most medals of honor have been awarded posthumously. Um, that is, the recipient did not um, survive. In fact, I looked it up, and one of the most recent um, medals of honor uh, to be uh, given, I thought it was the most recent, someone said to me there may have been some more recent, but it was last November uh, 2014, President Obama um, awarded a, a Medal of Honor to yet another Civil War veteran, I assume posthumously. Um, they, they didn't survive, he or she gave their life the ultimate sacrifice. See, this is so unusual, so counterintuitive that we rightly give someone a medal for it, rewarding bravery, uh, even self-sacrifice. The recipient is often recommended for the award by his or her commanding officer. Uh, it's approved by the recipient's chain of command, although Congress also has the right to both recommend and then turn around and approve the medal. In fact, it's often called the uh, uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor, that's a mistake, um, but probably called that because it is awarded in the name of Congress, but the actual name is just the Medal of Honor. Uh, the the, the Commander-in-Chief, the highest-ranking officer, the President of the United States, States, actually gives the award, usually in a White House ceremony. Now, there's actually a website that lists all of the recipients 
and why they were awarded the, the medal. It, it tells their stories of gallantry. It, it makes for very interesting reading. I mean, make no mistake about it. The stories tell of great personal sacrifice, often including death. You see, uh, it's difficult to be a soldier. I mean, certainly uh, to do something to merit the, the Medal of Honor, but just beyond that, to be a soldier serving in, in a country's military. And in fact, I, I just want to take the time to say, if you have done so, served in our military forces, I want to thank you for your service um, as you have sought to protect our country and, and the freedoms that we enjoy. Thank you for doing that. And I also want to call you, those of you who have served, since you know what it means to be a soldier, but, but more than that, not just for former service members, but all of you who name the name of Christ, I want to call you to endure hardship, to, to suffer in the Christian life, to, to give yourselves in selfless disregard for the good of others as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You see, the authors of Scripture often note that we, as believers, are, are in a war. Now, now, our fight is not against flesh and blood. That is, we don't fight against other people, but we fight against the forces of, of evil. It may be sin itself. We, we are encouraged to, to put on the armor of God so that we can fight successfully in this war. But you see, one of our, one of our problems is that, particularly here in the West, we get comfortable. <laughs> we forget there's a war going on, and we get easily sidetracked, distracted by civil, civilian pursuits. We forget to suit up with God's armor. We begin to live lives of ease. We live as if we're living in peacetime. And, and uh, uh, an illustration that I've shared with you before from John Piper, we often treat prayer as the intercom by which we summon the maid instead of a walkie-talkie by which we speak to the commander-in-chief. We, we forget that we're in war. So the call to us this morning is to remember we're in a war, and we are to, to suffer as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You see, we continue in our study of 2 Timothy this morning, and where we find Paul is writing a final letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. He's writing, he's actually writing from prison. It's his final imprisonment. He is, as it were, a POW, I guess, sort of. We remember that he called himself Christ's prisoner. This imprisonment will end in his execution. Persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero had broken out against Christianity. If you called yourself a Christian, you suffered. Now, it is not that Paul heretofore had not suffered. He certainly had. Like those Medal of Honor recipients whose stories are recounted, so also we read of Paul's sufferings, Paul's story in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? They are those who were opposing um, him. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. 
I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, from robbers and, and countrymen, and from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, from false brothers. And I've been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from, from such external things, there is the daily internal pressure of my concern for all of the churches. You see, Paul suffered as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This reads like many of those Medal of Honor accounts. If anyone deserved the medal, he did. And so now in his final imprisonment, he could write, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I've kept the faith. And so there is in the future uh, laid up for me a, a crown of righteousness, a, well, a medal, if you will. Having fought the good fight as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, having run a good race as a faithful athlete, having, having worked hard as a laborer, keeping the faith. And, and so he was sure that he would receive a medal, a crown, an imperishable wreath. He would be rewarded for fighting well, running well, working hard. And he wants, he wants those after him. He's writing to Timothy. He wants those after him, those to whom he had handed the baton of faith to fight similarly, to, run, to fight well, to run well, to, to work hard. He wants those who have come after him to do the same. Read the text with me, Second. Timothy chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 1 where we pick up that all-important context. You, therefore, in light of those examples of Phygelus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus that I just gave you, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me. Is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul has been urgently calling Timothy, to protect the gospel. Listen, I, I passed it on to you. I gave you the baton of faith. Now, you pass it on. Protected. Unchanged. Yeah, yes, persecution has broken out. Because, Timothy, we're, we're in a war. But rather than deserting, rather than going AWOL, like Phygelus and Hermogenes, join with me. Join with Onesiphorus in suffering for the gospel. Don't be ashamed. Instead, remember, keep being strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Keep on receiving what Christ has to offer you through His grace. Pass on the things that you've heard from me. Don't, don't lose the gospel. Pass it on to faithful men who will teach others, who will teach others, who will, who, who will teach others, who will teach others. It's a difficult task. I'm calling you to. I know. I, I know it firsthand. I've, 
I've suffered. I'm suffering. So Timothy and, and fellow believers, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. Compete as a faithful athlete. Work hard as a patient farmer. You see, Paul points out several qualities necessary to endure and illustrates them with these three very important occupations. But, but even as we get ready to jump into these, and make no mistake about it, he's going to encourage us to emulate these people, to pursue these qualities. I want to remind you that you have the triune God working on your behalf. You have the very power of God. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And you have the grace of Jesus Christ to be able to do what Paul is challenging us to do right now. You don't do this on your own. Pursue these qualities. So with all that, with the soldier, join in suffering with endurance. And with the athlete, compete with discipline and integrity. With the farmer, work hard in patience. Let's begin with the soldier and endurance in the face of suffering in verses 3 and 4. Several points we'll spend most of our time here need to be made. Notice he tells Timothy to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Again, he knows that Timothy, that in fact all believers are in a war. And let me say some things about the war in which we are engaged. It is a difficult war because the enemy is not always easily identifiable. And as a result, sometimes I think we get confused. In fact, it was John F. President John F. Kennedy in speaking of the Cold War, who said, when there is a visible enemy to fight in open combat, many serve, all, many serve, all applaud, and the tide of patriotism runs high. But when there is no immediate visible foe, your, your choice will seem hard indeed. This is true of the Christian life. Our foe is not immediately visible. And, and sometimes I think, again, that we become confused about who the enemy is. Sometimes I think we think that it's each other. Christians are great at shooting at each other. Other times we think it's the sinner. They're the enemy. No, 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 they aren't. We remember that Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the for world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We don't fight flesh and blood. We don't fight people. In our soldiering, in our battles, let's make sure that we are fighting the right foes. So, that means the enemy is not, I'm going to give you a list, I'm going to make sure you get this. The enemy is not those who offend us. The enemy is not those who are in different religions, although we want them to understand the truth of our faith. The enemy is not those who hold differing religious convictions within the Christian faith. The enemy is not those who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, who hold differing moral and political positions. The enemy is not those who are yet unredeemed sinners like we once were. Our struggle is against the forces of evil. You see, Satan is the one who holds them captive. And our desire is to battle the forces of evil, certainly against sin, and to rescue those held captive to do his will. We want to rescue people held in his clutches. People are not the enemy. Now, 
What are the demands of serving as a soldier? Paul lists a few. First, he says, suffer hardship. This is actually the very same word that he used in chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, and this is actually a better translation, join with me in suffering for the gospel. It means to endure suffering, uh, hardship, to, to, to take your share, Timothy, people of alliance, take your share of evil treatment along with us for the gospel. Paul is inviting Timothy and us to suffer. Now, is there suffering to be endured as a soldier? Of, of, of course there is. Even in peacetime, there are things like, you know, boot camp and training and discipline and hardship tours and field exercises and being away from family and constant moves and constant readiness. And again, for those of you who have served in that way, I am thankful. But, but in this context, he is talking about soldiers in wartime, which is, well, it's much worse. He's not talking about sea rations and MREs and polished boots. He's talking about being taken from your homes, your families and friends, being exposed to heat and cold and suffering and fatigue. That sounds familiar. Uh, sometimes being destitute of food and shelter. He's talking about enduring the fearful attacks of the enemy, constant risk to exposure and wounding or, or death. Soldiers are compelled to endure as much as the body can endure, sometimes beyond that, succumbing to death. That is suffering as a good soldier. And here, Paul actually tells Timothy to endure suffering as a good soldier. He knows what he's writing. A good soldier of Christ Jesus. In other words, for the gospel. Like he did in 2 Corinthians 11. That's another time, right? Isn't it? I don't know. Tell brothers and sisters around the world. It's what Paul was currently suffering, imprisoned, facing certain death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does this look like for us as Christians in America, where it seems like that we live in relative spiritual peace? What does this look like? Pastor John MacArthur writes. It is difficult for Christians in most of the Western world to understand what serious spiritual warfare and suffering for Christ mean. The secular environment in our society is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity and to religion in general. I believe that. He wrote that in 1995, 20 years ago. In becoming increasingly hostile. We are not faced, however, with loss of job, imprisonment, and execution because of our faith like Paul or Saeed, with few exceptions, being a Christian will not keep a student out of college or a worker from getting a good job. But the more faithful a Christian becomes and the more the Lord blesses his work, the more Satan, who is the real enemy, remember it's not people, Satan will put roadblocks and hardships and rejection in the way and the more evident the spiritual warfare will become and the more frequent and obvious the hardship will also become. I, I believe that is true. And I, and I have been saying I believe that it is going to increase all the more in the not-too-distant future. Here's the point. Here, here's the point, my brothers and sisters. We are not saved to a life of peacetime ease, to always sleep in a warm bed, to always be clothed and well-fed, to always be comfortable. We are called right here to a life of toil, affliction, and hardship, to a life of, of ministry on the front lines of battle. You say, but my life doesn't feel much like battle. Well, maybe that's because you aren't on the front lines. 
Maybe you're not fighting the good fight. You see, there is this demand to suffer hardship. And then secondly, there is this demand not to be involved in the affairs of everyday life. Your translation may have it in civilian affairs, verse 4. The problem just could be that we are living as civilians. We've forgotten there's a war. We're distracted. And we're living for ourselves. Important definitions to understand what Paul means here. The word for everyday life is the word from which we get our word pragmatic. It speaks of uh, everyday normal stuff. Whatever, whatever we do, you know, whatever everybody else does, just kind of live. Nothing wrong with this stuff, you see. Nothing wrong with it. But he is saying it is not to be our, our focus. The word affairs, the word from which we get our word biology, speaks of physical existence. Of everyday physical existence, like eating and drinking and sleeping, whatever else that we do to survive. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not our focus. You say eating it, yeah. The word entangles is quite important. It means to be to weave, to to become enmeshed in. And so the affairs of everyday life or civilian affairs speak of things that have to do with our physical existence. Nothing wrong with them, but have no eternal value. They're just not of paramount spiritual importance. Paul is reminding Timothy he's in a war and tells him not to become overly involved with the everyday pursuits of life. Nothing wrong with civilian affairs. They are just not to be the priority of our lives. We remember that Paul himself was a tent maker. He had a civilian job, but it wasn't his life's goal to have the biggest and best tent making business in the world. It wasn't his focus. He did it to make a living. I'm sure that he did it well. After all, he tells others, it tells us in other places, whatever you do, whatever, whatever it is that you do, whether you, even if you eat and drink those everyday affairs, do it to the glory of God. But it is not to be our ultimate pursuit. It's so easy to get distracted. Paul was writing at a time when Roman soldiers were not even allowed to be married because you were expected to be singly focused on the army. Think of it, let's bring it to the present. Let's think of it this way. When you join the U.S. Army after high school or college, you do not keep your job at Burger King. You become a soldier. Well, unless you're in the reserves. You know, the weekend warrior, which I, again, respect and appreciate. But maybe that is our challenge. We come to church on the weekend and forget that we are in active duty fighting War every day. Paul is calling us, he's calling the farmer to leave his fields, the mechanic his shop, the merchant his store, the student his books, our services to God. And it becomes then the priority of our lives. Jesus actually addressed this idea in Luke chapter 9. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily <laughs> on Sundays, no, daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what 
is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself another place, his own soul? A little while later in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, this, this truth is illustrated. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, I'm going to follow you uh, wherever you go. Hey, I am in, Captain, sign me up. And Jesus said, well, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You need to, you need to understand that. You need to be ready to suffer. He said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, permit me first to, to go bury my father. And his father wasn't dead. What he means is, hey, my dad's not dead. Let me, let me bury him first so that I'm there to get the inheritance, and then I will come follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. To another, still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Let me at least go back and say goodbye. By and Jesus says a rather startling words, kind of harsh. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is, is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow, that stings a little. Here's the point. The call to the Christian life is a radical call to commitment. In order to remain committed, we must endure. We must set our face and follow Jesus and endure suffering if necessary. Full-time commitment. No weekend warrior stuff. He's not interested in that. Being a soldier is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What kind of army would we have if during war we only fought on Sunday? And yet how many of us are in the Christian army just that way? Do not become overly involved, entangled, enmeshed in the affairs of everyday life. The call to be Christians to serve as believers must take precedence over every, every aspect of civilian life. Yeah, notice next he says the soldier's purpose is to please the commanding officer. Remember those medals of honor? They, 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 are, they are recommended by the commanding officer. It's not the soldier's purpose to please himself, to pursue his own plan or will. Again, imagine an army at war with no authority, no structure, everyone just doing their own thing. It would be utter chaos. All right, I'll just go do what I want to do. It was General George S. Patton who once said, if you can't get them to salute when they should salute or wear the clothes that you tell them to wear, how in the world are you going to get them to die for their country? Exactly. There is authority, and the soldier strives to please his commanding officer. An integral characteristic of fallen man is to please himself. But as redeemed people, our will is to be absorbed in the will of the commander, to please him when he speaks, and he has. We should be willing, eager to obey the one. Notice who has enlisted us. Don't miss that. He enlisted us. I'll just make one statement about that. You were drafted. All that for a soldier. We turn now to verse 5 where we see some other second qualities for true commitment, discipline, and integrity evidence in the life of the athlete. We'll move quickly through these last two. Paul has in mind here, with this one, one of his favorite metaphors that appears throughout his writings, that of the Greek games. No doubt if he were alive today, he would liken the Christian life to a good basketball game. 
to compete as an athlete carries with it the idea of the struggle that requires great discipline and determination to win. Athletes struggle, they contend, they compete, they strive to win. It takes discipline and training to be a winner. As the athlete competes, he does so for the victor's crown, which is kind of interesting. They compete, the athlete in the Olympic Games or for the, in the Isthmian Games, the, the Greek Games, they, they fight for the victor's crown. Got me to thinking, can anyone tell me who won the 100-meter dash in the Greek Games in 64 AD? About the time this was written, anybody at all? Oh, okay, uh, how about the 1968 Olympics? Oh, oh okay, well, how about 2000 Olympics? These athletes compete for a crown that is soon forgotten. So we too compete, but not for a fading laurel wreath, but a crown of glory that will last forever. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control on all things. They do it then to receive a perishable wreath, but we imperishable. Therefore, I run not in such a way as without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline. This is, what, this is what athletes do. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I, I, I discipline myself. Remember under the, the work of the triune God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now, just a side note here, but everyone does realize we are not competing against each other, right? This is where this analogy of Paul's breaks down. There is a victor's crown for all who run successfully. Therefore, in the Christian community, we should be helping each other in the race. We're not competitors. Think, get this picture in your mind. You see this. This seems to be happening a lot here recently. You see, particularly in high school, students are running maybe cross-country, 5K, something like that. And, and someone gets near the finish line, and they just collapse. Something happens. And then someone stops and helps them across the line. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not competing with each other. We're helping each other along the way. We all get the victor's crown. The emphasis here is the fact that the athlete must be disciplined enough to compete according to the rules. I guess if it was today, you wouldn't take performance-enhancing drugs. You know, you wouldn't use a cork bat. You wouldn't use deflated footballs. But here, the rule he's probably referring to is the rule of suffering. If you want to compete well, you've got to do it according to the rule. You've got to suffer. No getting around that. Now, there were three rules or qualifications that needed to be met in order to compete in the Greek games. First, you must be a true born-again Greek, or excuse me, a true born Greek. Second, you had to be involved in a rigorous 10-month training regimen before the games. And third, you had to compete within the specific rules of your given event. Comparable rules apply to the Christian life. We must be truly born again into the family of, of God. We must be faithful in preparation through God's word. And we must live in obedience to Christ's divine standards. No getting around that. Finally, last point, very, very quickly. We see hardworking patience as seen in the life of the farmer. Suffer by working hard. 
this word hardworking is a favorite of Paul's. He almost used it in a, in a technical way to speak of serving in ministry. He speaks of wearisome, exhausting toil. He speaks of working to the point of exhaustion. I'm so tired. Keep going. Unlike the soldier or the athlete, the farmer is engaged in somewhat monotonous work. There are a certain amount of glamour in being a soldier or an athlete, often applauded, but the farmer teaches us patience, hard work without much fanfare, without immediate results. He is patient under uncertain season, quietly waits for gains, plowing, sowing, cultivating, and ultimately reaping a harvest. While he is finally rewarded, hard Work, sacrifice precedes the reward. The reward is coming. Work diligently and faithfully is what he's telling us. Please don't miss that in all three of these examples, Paul holds out reward. Holds out reward. If we suffer hardship well, we will, we will please our commanding officer. Is there anything better than that? If we run according to the rules, we win the prize, a imperishable victor's crown. If we work hard and patiently, we will receive reward. To follow Christ involves ceaseless effort, struggle, and sacrifice, but the compensations are incomparable and the rewards are eternal and certain. Such that Paul could later say, said it many times, I have fought the good fight as a good soldier. I have finished the course, the race as a faithful athlete. I have patiently kept the faith under much hard work as a farmer. Now, now, now there is laid up for me a reward, a crown of righteousness, not just for me, but for everyone who longs for his appearing. Paul closes by saying, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is incredibly important, a very important verse. I'll just make a couple of comments. The promise is, as we reflect on God's Word, studying and meditating on it, spending time in God's Word, God will give us understanding to include the ways to, to apply it to our lives. Please notice, please notice, don't miss this, that it takes both the study and meditation of God's Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It takes, it takes both. And so as we close, I encourage you to, to reflect on this passage. Let me help you by asking some questions. Are you really committed this morning? I mean, really? Beyond this hour? Are you suffering hardship with single-minded devotion? Well, the most important thing to you is serving Christ and not what you do when you punch in at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. Are you competing according to the rules? Eyes fixed on Christ. Have you, have you put the hand to the plow, refusing to turn back and, and working hard? If so, my brothers and sisters, certain reward awaits. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the truth of this text. It's a, it's a rather challenging text. It's a, it's a call, once again, theme of this book, to suffer, to endure suffering, to work hard. And, and yet we're, we're told already three times before we get to chapter 2, the triune God is at work in our lives to help us persevere. So we're not left to do this alone. And yet we're, we're empowered to do this, to suffer, to discipline, to train, to compete, to to work hard to the point of exhaustion, all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to stay ultimately, singly focused on our commander-in-chief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 12, having just written extensively, exhaustively almost, uh, about the gospel. Paul turns his attention to the life of the gospel. And in Romans 12, verses 14 and 15, he says these words. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Um. I'm sure that most, if not all of you, are aware of the incredibly sad event which took place at Emmanuel AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina this week. Wednesday evening, I want to be very clear that our brothers and sisters in Christ were gathered like we often do for Bible study. Young man came to the event, hung out for about an hour, pulled a gun and shot and killed nine people. I am not going to make political statements about gun control or, or racism. I refuse, as many pundits have done, to politicize such an awful event other than to say that racism is sinfully abhorrent. And I'm going to call us as much as is possible to destroy the evil of racism, which obviously still exists in our country and in fact may lurk in our own hearts. And so I'm going to call us where necessary to repent I'm going to call us to pray for the families of those who, who lost loved ones. We will weep with those who weep. And so will you pray with me? Father, words cannot begin to express the, the pain and the sorrow of of this insidious evil of, of racism that led to this event perpetrated against our brothers and our sisters this week. Yes, African-American brothers and sisters in Christ 
And so ultimately, it is not an issue of, 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 of race for us. It's an issue of family. It's an issue of family members in another city who are gathered to study the Bible like we just did. Paid for it with their own lives. And so, Father, I want to this morning very especially and very specifically to pray for the families of those, the, the, the biological families of those, certainly spiritual families, as, as churches gather across this nation to pray, the biological families of, of those, many of whom no doubt are brothers and sisters. So I pray for Pastor Clementa Pickman, Cynthia Hurd, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Tywanza Sanders, Myra Thompson, Ethel Lee Lance, Susie Jackson, Daniel Simmons, and DePayne Middleton Doctor. These are many, if not all, I suppose, brothers and sisters who now are in your presence. With this, we celebrate. We celebrate the hope and truth of the gospel. But, 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 we, but we pray for their families. And we pray that you would continue to do the work that needs to be done in our country. Would you forgive us, help us to repent of this national evil that exists all too often on Sunday mornings. Would, would you forgive us? Would you help us to recognize that through his death, Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition that divides people. And he's calling us into one new man. He's calling us to be a people, a family, brothers and sisters who worship one father. Forgive us. Grant grace, peace, and comfort to Emmanuel AME Church as they are no doubt meeting right now. Churches across our country, brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.